Amen. You guys can have a seat. I mentioned earlier uh, that I'm excited because Eric Wiggum, who I get to plant a church with in Council Bluffs, he's preaching this morning. So I am fired up. Uh, whenever Whitney and I, my wife, whenever we felt like we were being called to plant a church in Council Bluffs, very quickly I went to Eric, got lunch with him, and said, hey, if you'll let me be on your team, I'd love to do this with you. Uh, the reason I did that is because Eric has been passionately pursuing Jesus in Council Bluffs for many years, making disciples of Jesus in that city, multiplying small groups, kind of what we wanted to do as a church plant. He was already doing that and down the road. And I was like, hey, can I be on your team? Pick me, pick me, please. Um, and so th- a few things I love about Eric. First, he's a man. He has a beard, which I will probably never have. Um, and that just is what it is. But also, uh, he's married to his wife, Sarah. They have four children. And so um, we're going to have a lot of children in our children's ministry in Council Bluffs. Even if it's only Eric and I, our children's ministry is going to be huge. Um, also, Eric is an incredible pastor. He cares for people well, enters into what they're going through, points them to Jesus Christ, um, and just journeys with them and serves them well. Um, finally, I love Eric because he's a good friend. He's just been awesome and faithful to me over the years. Eric and I have been through ups together. We've been down through downs together. And I've just enjoyed being a friend with him, letting our families be friends. Um, and I'm just excited for him to come preach. You guys are going to be blessed this morning. Uh, we got to hear some of the sermon earlier this week. And, oh, man, it's good. It's going to point us to Jesus. And we're going to leave this room saying we want more of Jesus Christ. So, Eric, come on up. And uh, we're going to pray for you. All right. Let's pray for Eric. Father God, thank you for this friend, this teammate, uh, this pastor. I look so forward to sitting under his preaching today and for many more days to come. Would you just fill him with your Holy Spirit now so that he joyfully preaches the scriptures to us, holds fast to your written word, and just delivers to us a living word pointing us to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Undeserved introduction. One of the things I love about Doug is he makes me look like I'm a child, which is why I have to have a beard. Uh, well, I am um, co-planting the uh, church in, in uh, Council Bluffs with Doug, and I am really excited about what's going on in that city, in my town, and I'm excited for just the momentum that you guys have brought um, in sending us. And so I want to start off just by saying thank you. Um, it, it really has been an honor and humbling to be a part of what's going on here um, and to get a take off with what's going on over there. Um, I'm also excited to be here this morning and get a preach. Uh, Doug and Chris and Gavin talked to me a few weeks ago and they said, Eric, do you want to preach on February 14th? And I said, absolutely, this is Valentine's Day. We have a loving God. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I'd love to do that. And then I looked at the text, and it's Luke 20, 1 through 18. And I don't know if you guys paid attention when it was read earlier, but this is what we get. Some self-righteous religious guys challenge Jesus' authority, and then he tells them a story, you're going to kill me, and then you get destroyed. (laughs) The end. Happy Valentine's Day, right? Like, there's lots of love here. Guys, it's my first chance to (laughs) preach to these people, and this is what you give me. Um... But if I'm going to be honest, on second glance, if you look at it one more time, I really believe that Luke captures the love story that Jesus is writing to his people. He tells it three times in this text. 
Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, I love you. And so I want to dive into that today. And I think this is the story arc, okay? I think Jesus is going to walk us through the same story three times. And he's going to say, there's rejection. There are results of that rejection. There are consequences. And then I'm going to offer redemption. Rejection results redemption. This is the love story Jesus tells three times. He tells it in the temple. He tells it in the vineyard. And he tells it about the stone. Okay, and so that's our, that's our outline. That's where we're going today. Um, so if you'll go with me, I just want to dive into the text. So let's read God's word together. He starts off, Luke 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? This sets the context. Jesus uh, is is establishing himself as an authority. If you know the story here, for the last three years, Jesus has been working miracles. He's been walking on water, calming the winds and the waves. He's turned water to wine. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead to life. He's taught the Old Testament with greater clarity than any of the scribes or teachers or priests were able to do. He's been establishing himself and growing in influence and following for three years. And then just prior to this text, Jesus enters Jerusalem the center hub of religious activity for all of the Jewish world, and he does it with the pomp and circumstance of a king. People are laying down their robes and palm branches, and they're praising him, shouting, Hosanna in the highest. He enters the city as a king, and then he enters the temple. And in the temple, he sees money changers, and he takes the tables and he turns them over, And he takes the cords that open and close the shades, and he uses them as whips to drive out the money changers. And he says, my father's house will not be a den of robbers. It will be a house of prayer. And now in chapter 20, we see he's standing in the temple, and he's teaching, and he's preaching. And the religious authorities, the elders and the scribes and the priests, are starting to get bothered. They're starting to get angry. Jesus, this is our job. We're the gatekeepers here. We're put in charge. We're the ones who get to say who does the will of God and who doesn't. And what is the will of God and what isn't. And so you're kind of infringing on our authority right now. And so we got a question for you, Jesus. New guy. Tell us. By what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? You know what they're really asking? Why didn't you ask us first? Why didn't you recognize that we are in charge? Why didn't you honor our authority? That's the question they're asking. They don't want to know the answer to the question that they ask. They want Jesus to bow the knee to them. And so they say... What authority are you acting under? What gives you the right to do this? And Jesus responded. 
He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus' goal here is to reveal the state of their hearts. Are you willing to recognize the truth or are you trying to trap me? And so he asked, well, where did John, John's authority come from? John the Baptist. John was a baptizer. And so they get together, the religious leaders, they huddle up and they say, well, if we say that John's authority came from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because see, when John baptized Jesus, a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Spoke out of heaven. Everybody heard it that was there. A great crowd testified to the fact that God himself called Jesus his son at the baptism that John performed. John himself called Jesus the Son of God, the Lamb of God. John confessed, I am not the Christ, but the one who comes after me will be greater than me. He will be the Messiah. So if we say that John's authority came from heaven, then we got to recognize that Jesus also has authority from heaven. His authority is greater than ours. But we don't want to do that. We are the authority here. And so what's our alternative? Well, we can say that John's authority came from man. It's not from heaven. It's worldly. It's of his own accord that John did these things. The trouble with that answer is that everybody knows it's wrong. Anybody else in the temple who was asked that question would have said John's authority came from heaven. He was a prophet sent by God. We know that. And so if the if the religious authorities say it came from man, it's revealed that they're not authentic, they're liars, they're hard-hearted, and they're set opposed to God. And the people would have stoned them to death. And so we have this choice, the religious leaders. We can honor Jesus' authority as being granted by heaven. Or we can get stoned to death. We recognize Jesus' authority, die by stoning. Seems like an obvious choice to make if you're the religious leader. What happens? They come up with a resounding, we don't know. They say, so they answered, that they did not know where it came from. We're not going to bow the knee to you, Jesus, and we're not going to get stoned. We don't know. How humiliating this must have been, right? This reminds me of my three-year-old son. His name's Jonah. Stands about this tall, love him to death. Uh, he, likes, he has this knack for finding times when he has no rightful authority, but pretending like he does. So, for instance, I'll be walking up the stairs, and he'll say, Dad, go upstairs. <laughs> and I'm like, dude... You're not in charge, but I do have to go upstairs, and so I'm going to obey. <laughs> it's not just me. The Nebraska Furniture Mart delivery guys delivered a dryer to our house the other day. I asked my wife where it went. She said, you can take it downstairs. So as soon as they start going downstairs, Jonah walks up, top of the stairs. Guys, take that downstairs. <laughs> I mean, 
He does this all the time. I don't know how he got so good at it, but he finds ways to say, I have authority when he really doesn't, right? This is what the religious leaders are doing. They're saying, we have authority here, but it's clear that they don't. How humiliating would this have been? They asked Jesus, hey, you answer us where your authority came from. And Jesus says, I've got an easy question for you first. And anybody could answer. Where John's come from? And they have to answer, I don't know. They don't know. Or at least they're not willing to answer it. They're humiliated. Their hearts are revealed. They're hard-hearted and stubborn. And so Jesus responds, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This response to me came off a little bit like uh, an argument that you might have with an angry girlfriend. You know this, you can tell she's upset, and you say, hey babe, what's wrong? And she says, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Right? I'm guessing... Everybody here has either played that card or had that card played on them at some point. And when you're in that situation, you know nobody's going to win, right? He doesn't know. You're not going to tell him. You want him to know. This is bad. Guys, listen. It's Valentine's Day. When your girl plays that card, it's legit. Jesus played it first, right? That's biblical. (laughs) So you got to be ready for that. Pay attention to what's going on. Uh, But ladies, you don't get off the hook, okay? Because even though this was the answer that Jesus gave, even though he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, he didn't leave them humiliated. He didn't leave them without a chance. He didn't leave them without a way to understand. He gave them a hint, and he told them a story. And so the next time you play that card... You can't leave him humiliated. you got to give him a hint. All right, it's Valentine's Day. Uh, So we look at this story arc, rejection to redemption. And in the temple, it looks like this. The religious leaders challenge Jesus' authority. And the result of that rejection of him as the authority led to their humiliation. Their hearts were revealed as hard-hearted and stubborn. And Jesus didn't answer their question. The redemption, though, is that he didn't leave them there. He didn't leave them wondering where his authority came from. He didn't leave them wondering what his purpose was. He told them a parable, and he gave his accusers and his opponents, his challengers, an opportunity to understand. One more. And so we see the love story. Even when you reject me, I'll give you a shot at redemption. Right? So he tells a parable. That's where we're going to go next. It's a parable about some wicked tenants, all right? We pick up in verse 9. And he began, he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. The stage is set. There are some players here. There's an owner. The owner of the vineyard planted it himself. It was the creation of his own hands. He used his time and sweat and tears and resources to create a vineyard, and it was awesome. It was beautiful. Not everybody gets to have a vineyard, let alone live in one. 
There's vines that have color in season. It's productive. It's fruitful. These, the people who live in the vineyard don't just get sustained by dry wheat and barley and vegetables, right? They get sweet grapes that can be pressed into wine. It's a fruitful, beautiful, wonderful place. There's work for your hands, and you get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. This is a good place. The owner creates a vineyard, and then he goes away. But before he does, he lets the vineyard out to tenants. This is not uncommon. It still happens today, right? My grandfather is a farmer. He's getting old. He can't farm it anymore. There are some young guys that live nearby. They want to farm his land, and so they enter into a cash rent contract, he gives them the right to farm the land, they get a harvest, they get all of the benefit of the harvest, and all he asks is for a share of it. Rent. Same thing for the tenants. They get to live in the beauty of the vineyard. They get to tend it and enjoy it. And all the owner asks is that they would honor him as the rightful owner by sharing the fruit of their labor. So this is the contract. This is the scene, story set. The problem is the tenants are wicked. And we see it time and again. The first place we see it is in verse 10. When the time came, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The first place we see that the tenants are wicked is that they don't pay rent. They breach the contract. When harvest has come in, instead of sending some of the fruit of the vineyard to the owner, they keep it all. They don't send it away. And so the owner has to take a servant from his household who tends to him and send him away, back to where the vineyard is to collect rent. Listen, In today's world, if you own a property and you rent it out and your renters don't pay rent, that's enough to kick them out legally. You can end the contract when they fail to live up to their end of it. And so the owner has every right at this point. When they haven't paid rent, you can kick them out. But he doesn't. He shows them grace. He gives them another chance. He sends his servant to collect rent. And what happens? When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The tenants see the servant. We're not paying rent. Got it? Just as a message to the owner, here's a black eye and a bloody nose. Let him know we're not paying. And so servant number one, Heads back to his master, beaten and bloodied, empty-handed, no fruit, no rent. So what's the owner do? Verse 11, and he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Second chance, the tenants get worse. Hey, you sent somebody else? Our message wasn't clear enough. This guy gets the black eye, the bloody nose, and we're going to shame him. 
We're going to tear his clothes. We're going to shave his head, cut his beard, whatever it looks like. He goes back beaten and shamed and empty-handed. Now, if you're in the owner's house at this point and you're a servant, you're hoping I don't get picked next, right? (laughs) Did not go well for the first two. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm going to try to fly under the radar. What's the owner do? Verse 12. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Servant number three gets it the worst of all. Black eye, bloody nose, shamed, and a broken leg. Right? He goes back wounded. The tenants send ever-increasing messages. We will not pay. The contract is done. This is our vineyard. You have no rights to it. The fruit is ours. It's not yours. We will not pay. And so the owner thinks to himself. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? How do I respond? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Do you imagine what that would do? What it would take to go that far? To give another chance? If you have a son, think about this. I have three. My son is my own flesh and blood. There's nobody closer to me than him. I love him. I've given my time to sing him to sleep every night, to build Legos with him and wrestle with him, to teach him, to train him. I give my life to this boy. I work hard so that the resources that I earn can lead to his joy and his good, that he might be well-fed and provided for. My life, in large part, is dedicated to making sure that my son knows he is loved by me. And now, I have wicked tenants that won't pay rent. And I think to myself, my son has every right to this vineyard one day. He stands to inherit all that I own. Maybe if I send him, the tenants will say, I need to make this right. This is the future owner. Maybe the tenants will see that if I send my son, I deserve respect. If I send my son, maybe they'll give some of that honor back to me because it was my vineyard in the first place. I'm going to send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. Imagine the patience it would take with the tenants, the long-suffering, the grace, the mercy it would take to to send your son into the hands of these people. Yet he does. Verse 14 tells us what happened. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They murdered the son. They didn't just beat him. 
They didn't just shame him and wound him. They killed the son. The contract is done. You cannot more fully reject the owner than killing the beloved son, the heir of the property. They said they lived under the pretense of a lie that they had convinced themselves of. They thought to themselves, when the son comes, he stands in the way of us and our vineyard. He is the one that prevents this from being ours. If we kill him, we own the vineyard. There's no one else to take it over. It's ours. So we're going to kill the son, and then we're going to possess the vineyard ourselves. And we get to be the owner. But it was a lie. They believed a lie. Because when they murdered the son, the owner responded. Luke goes on, as Jesus told the story. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, they believed that if they rejected the son, they would get the vineyard. But when they rejected the son, they got rejected by the father. It was completely opposite. The father said, you killed my son. And so finally, his anger has been kindled, and he kicks them out of the vineyard, never to enter it again, and they are destroyed. The result of their rejection was that they were rejected. You see it? There's redemption here. There's redemption still At the end of this verse, what will the owner do? He will come and destroy those tenants and what? Give the vineyard to others. My father-in-law lives in northeast Nebraska. He's got a farm. And there was an old farmhouse in the middle of a field, long lane, old farmhouse. He rented that out. He was a landlord. And uh, he got some bad renters once. They would throw parties and they would throw broken glass bottles out into the field, cans out into the field. They did this a lot. When it came time to plant, my father-in-law went out to his field, and all of the, the debris and the garbage in the field would have destroyed his machinery. And so he and his brother, who he farms with, had to spend hours cleaning the field of the garbage that his tenants had thrown in it. Then... They quit paying rent, abandoned the house, left sick cats in it, and it was destroyed. I won't go into detail, right? They destroyed the property. Now, my father-in-law, as the landlord, had a couple options. I can clean up the house and rent it out to somebody else. It's a cool house. I mean, it's small, but you get to see the crops grow around you throughout the season. You get to watch harvest come in. It's it's pretty awesome to get to do that. He could have cleaned up the house and rented it out again, but you know what he actually did? He burned it down and he (laughs) farms it, right? You would probably do the same thing. If you were jaded as a landlord and the tenants were awful and wicked, and instead of getting the honor for giving somebody the opportunity to enjoy your property, all they do is spit in your face 
and wound you and reject you, you could get jaded as a landlord and say, not again. My good asset does not get to be enjoyed by anybody else. And the owner here could have closed the gate to his vineyard and said, forget it. But he doesn't. The owner says he's going to give it again to somebody else. Somebody who will honor his son. Somebody who will honor him. There's redemption there. And so in the parable, we see the same story arc, the same love story. That the tenants rejected the owner, the father, by breaching the contract, beating the servants, killing the son. The result was they were rejected by the father. And the redemption is the vineyard does get let out again. This was a thinly veiled parable, right? There's context to the story that Jesus tells. The religious leaders were challenging his authority. Where does it come from? And so he tells them in this story, this is where I get my authority. And so they know, as he tells the story, they know who the players are. They know that the owner is the creator of the vineyard. That's God. He's the father. He created a good place. The vineyard is a classic uh, uh, name for Israel in the Old Testament. And so the people of Israel are the vineyard. The tenants are the religious leaders, the very ones who are challenging the authority of Jesus. And so when Jesus tells the story, the servants of the father are the prophets who were sent time and again and rejected by God's people, beaten and cast out and cast aside. And so then God sends his son. Time and again, John the Baptist has said that Jesus was the son of God. Jesus claimed it himself. The religious leaders know Jesus is talking about himself. And he says, you are going to kill me, and then you're going to be destroyed. You don't get the vineyard anymore. God's going to give it to somebody else. And now... Now the religious leaders are willing to stand on God's word, on who God says he is. Earlier, they said, what authority do you have, Jesus? And then they don't want to listen when God spoke out of heaven. But now that they get in trouble, they're willing to lean on God's word. And they say, surely not, Jesus. Surely not. God won't take this away from us. God is faithful to his promises. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He promised Abraham that we would be the chosen people. He's not going to renegotiate that. He won't go back on his word. Surely not. And then Luke writes, but he, Jesus, looked directly at them. He looks them in the eye. They've had twice the opportunity to understand what Jesus is saying, and they still don't get it. And so he looks them in the eye, and he quotes Psalm 118. This is a passage from the Old Testament, messianic passage. People know that it was referring to the Messiah. He quotes Psalm 118 when he says, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. Same story. There are builders. They reject a good stone. The cornerstone's important because in those days, it would set the tone for the whole building. 
it would have a good right angle, and it would be level, so that the building that was created is plumb and true and solid. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, you leaders, you rejected the good stone, and you've built it yourself. You've built a kingdom yourself. He's referring to the religious bureaucracy that the leaders created, the leaders created in the temple. And he said, that building's going to crumble because it had a bad cornerstone. You rejected me. And then the psalm says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's redemption. A new building will be created, and it will be built on the cornerstone of Jesus himself. Again, rejection results redemption. And so I'd ask the question today, what does this mean for us? What do we take from a parable where Jesus tells the religious leaders, you're going to reject me and you're going to be destroyed? I think the same love story that Jesus was telling about his people, that he is the redeemer of the people who reject him. I think it's the same love story he wants to tell us today. So where do you see yourself in this story? Where do you place yourself here? I want to start by saying, church, we are the rejectors. We are the ones who reject Jesus. We're skeptical of Christ's authority over us. We're people prone to love the world more than we love Jesus. We don't want to obey God and honor him as the creator and the king. We want to take command ourselves. We want to be the authority over our own lives. And so just like the religious leaders did, we challenge his authority all the time. We say things like, Jesus, you're the cornerstone. Everything is supposed to be built on you. Everything. My career and my leisure, my family, my finances, my thoughts, my feelings, my waking, my sleeping, my joys, my fears, my everything, everything is under your authority. Isn't that a little extreme, Jesus? We challenge him. We say things like, you're the only way. The only way. What if I try to be the best person I can be? Isn't my best good enough for you? Wouldn't you accept that? And listen, when we challenge him like that, I want to tell you, when you challenge Christ's authority, you murder the son. When we stand in opposition to God, we become murderers. The rejectors are murderers. And the result is justice. We're destined for eternal separation from God, for death and destruction. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And so when we ask, how can God be good? who would create a place like hell? How could we read about God's wrath in Scripture and say that God is good? Why would we submit to a God like that? I would say as a father, it makes sense. You read this parable, and we see that we killed his son. And if somebody killed my son today, I would want justice to be served. And that's what God and so the result of our rejection is justice. 
But Jesus has good news today. This is a love story. And the good news is that the one we rejected has become our redeemer. The murdered son looks at us and says, you killed me, but there's no reason that we both have to die. Let my death stand in your place so that my life can be given to you. The guilty one got death. The the innocent one got death. The guilty one gets life. Can you imagine greater redemption than that? Can you imagine a greater love? Can you fathom a greater grace? I would submit to you that there's not one available. This is the greatest love story ever written. And so today on Valentine's Day, here's what I say. If you're celebrating love on Valentine's Day, let's not forget the lover of our souls who stepped out of heaven and into earth and wrapped himself in flesh and walked to the cross to show us his great love for us. Let's not forget that Jesus is the hero of this love story and he pursues us. And that's worth celebrating on the day that we celebrate love. And if today you're celebrating Singles Awareness Day, (laughs) right? And you're lonely and wondering, could anybody ever love me? Will it ever happen for me? Let me tell you, Jesus is good. And the same love story that he's written for his people for all time, he's writing for you. And he's pursuing you. And he offers a love that's so much greater than any man or woman could ever give. It's permanent. It's personal. It's intimate. This is a love story that's still being written. Jesus is the hero And you have a role to play. We are the rejectors, and he is the redeemer. Oh, this Valentine's Day, let's celebrate Jesus. Will Will you pray with me? Awesome God, I thank you. I thank you that you were willing to send your son. I thank you that you are a good God who created a good world for us and that in spite of the fact that we have done nothing but reject you, in spite of the fact that our hearts are sick and prone to rebellion, God, you sent your son into our hands and we killed him. God, it takes great love to even fathom why you would do such a thing. But you did it, and you're good, and you're worthy to be loved in return. You're worthy of the glory and the honor and the praise due to your name. And so, God, I pray on Valentine's Day today that we would celebrate your great love for us. Thank you for sending your son. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.